to Pick a Little, Talk a Little. We're a podcast. It's about musical theater. We talk about musicals. I, as always, am your host, Gabriella Gazelowitz. And who do we have with us today? You have Ariel with you. Well, Ariel here to clarify. So last month we did spooky musicals because it was October, and October is a spooky month. Um, and we're going to stick with the idea of themes a little bit. And this month is non-Broadway November. We've certainly covered musicals on the show that are most famous for productions not on Broadway. But we've never done a show that has never been on Broadway. And I think that's unfair because, believe it or not, Broadway is not the be-all, end-all of musical theater. So our two shows this month are shows that, while important, cool works of musical theater have not officially played the great white way. No Tony conversation today. So, Ariel, which is the first of the two non-Broadway musicals? We are doing Jonathan Larson's pre-rent musical, Tick, Tick, Boom. Boom. (laughs) (laughs) That was not. All right. Often stylized as lowercase t, so tick, comma, tick, comma, ellipsis, all capital letters, boom. When we say non-Broadway, it could mean a variety of things. This is off-Broadway, but with a bit of a twist for those of you who do not know. Uh, Jonathan Larson. Oh, what? Anyway. Yeah. I don't know if I'm more sad about Jonathan Larson or Howard Ashman. It's not a contest. But Jonathan Larson is most known as the creator of Rent. And if you know one other Jonathan Larson show, it's Tick, Tick, Boom. So it's technically a fictionalized autobiography. I am going to treat... Everything in this musical is literally happening to Jonathan Larson. (laughs) I knew it was like semi-autobiographical. His relationships with the people around him, I think, is is sort of streamlined. But down to the fact that it's about a struggling musical theater writer who's been a very promising talent for years, living in New York City and about to turn 30 and freaking out about his wasted potential And he has a workshop of one of his shows coming up. And that does work out. He was working on a show. We will hear one of the songs from that show. Nothing ever happened from the show. We'll get into that a little bit. Um, Anyway, so Jonathan Larson also dropped dead of an aortic aneurysm shortly before he turned 36, right before Rent opened off Broadway. It's so sad. It's really sad. So he had written Tick, Tick, Boom as essentially an autobiographical rock opera which is amazing like a one-man autobiographical rock opera and it wasn't super accessible that way but through his estate uh the playwright david auburn uh reworked it added a more substantial book and it became a three-actor show that premiered off-broadway in 2001 and actually there's just been a production off-broadway now it's played london really that is a show we're going to be looking at because larson's original piece is not a complete work. We're going to look at this show partly through the lens of people who know Rent. And I have heard people say recently, oh, this show is actually better than Rent. You're right. Ariel is shaking her (laughs) head because I like this show a lot. But the thing about it that is so amazing is you go, wow, over the course of like five years, he grew tremendously as a songwriter and went from writing something that's like, eh, to something that's Amazing. I mean, I will defend Rent to the death. Fight me. totally. So uh, personal associations with the show. Ariel, what do you got? Okay, so my introduction to this show was through one of the songs. One of my friends played it for me because she thought 
that the double entendre in the song was hysterical. Actually, for a very long time, I had a portion of 3090 as my ringtone. Remember back in the like mid-2000s when not only did people put their phones not on vibrate, but you chose music to go to it? And it was difficult to do at the time because we didn't yeah. have iPhones or droids or I whatever. I think we had to put it on Izzy's phone and then he had to like Bluetooth, Bluetooth it. It was a process, but it was yeah. worth it because then I would call you and I'd hear Peter Pan and Tinkerbell. Anyway, so like you, I have never actually seen this show on stage. I know the score really well. I know the libretto really well. I have a full audio bootleg of the show of the London production with Neil Patrick Harris as John. Uh, I have not seen it. I am sufficiently familiar with it because it is not a I mean, it can, I mean it, it can be a heavily staged show, but there's not by much by way of traffic on stage because there's traditionally three actors moving around the set pieces. This is the way it's usually directed. Yeah. So the show has three actors, and while there's you know maybe like a dozen characters, there are three main characters to speak of, and the, each of the three characters predominantly inhabits each of the three actors predominantly inhabits one role and then two of the actors also take on everyone else so the show starts with the ticking on stage and uh we meet john and john explains that the ticking noise is a metaphor for what's going on in his head and the feeling he has as he approaches his 30th 30th birthday so old yeah we're not that far away well so he feels really upset and desperate and he is worried that he hasn't fulfilled his potential. By the way, we establish here, he frequently throughout the show says where he is in New York City. The show takes place entirely in New York City, but everywhere from, well, uptown to downtown. I don't know if he makes it to Brooklyn. But one of the things I love about this show is that it's such a love letter to New York City in a way that's almost a little bit less ambiguous than Rent. In Rent, they're like, let's leave New York. And even though there are characters in this musical that have the same feeling... Jonathan is just too in love with the city, like even with the parts he hates. And I really relate to that. <laughs> He's like, ugh, there are the tourists in Times Square with the stupid British shows that are ruining Broadway. God, I really wish I had a show on Broadway. And I'm like, yeah. I, I feel yeah. We get our first song, which is 3090, which I love. It's a great opening number. Yeah. So this is the first song we're seeing of his that is a song that he has written before he wrote Rent. Um, both his composing and his lyricism only got better and the lyrics are fine and the lyrics are even good and at times they're even great in general the lyrics sort of don't have their laser focus I would say that Rent has Rent is either very dense in both meaning and plot stuff or very powerful in terms of sentiment and this just has a little bit less punch in each of those areas. It's a lot of references, a lot of allusions to different things. Which is something he does in Rent, but it's... Right. But it's kind of all over the place. It would be disappointing if the best of his work was earlier on, I guess. That yeah. he, his life did, in a sense, have this culmination in terms of conflating the, his it's autobiographical so character, manifestation of himself and himself. Yeah, it completely trips me out and I think that's what carries this show through some of its warts and flaws because we're gonna get to is through this show he jokes at one point about having a pre-midlife crisis but he doesn't realize that his life is actually oh more than half over well who way who more does, than half over who does know that I know uh, but like 
That sucks. Anyway, in this song, we also meet the two other significant characters. One is his best friend, Michael, who was a struggling actor who has sold out, who has quit acting to go into business marketing stuff. And we meet his girlfriend, Susan. Susan is also a struggling artist. She's a dancer who makes her living teaching dance instead of really being able to live dance. And she and Michael and has recently sold out. And Susan, we'll find, is sort of ready she, to... She's on the verge. She's not on the verge of necessarily selling out because she says, you know, I don't have to live in New York City. I can go and live in the suburbs and still be a dancer. New York isn't the only place where there's art. Eventually she gets a job in Northampton, Massachusetts and she says, I got a job in a real theater company. This song <laughs> is great. It's one of the strongest songs in the show. Um, while there is a plot, there are also generally series vignettes. So next we see that Michael and John are talking and that Michael wants to invite John to try out a day at his job, essentially. It's like bring your struggling artist best friend to work day is, is coming is up. Is the song broken up by vignettes? Is that what's happening? Nope. The song is over. We finished the song. Was we there something else the you wanted to say about the song? Oh, no. It's just... This musical is so much of John sitting there and monologuing at us. And some, and I think it does a, it does a really good job of capturing what you think Jonathan Larson was like as a person. I can't speak to whether or not that is true. And it's charming, yet kind of insufferable. Um, one thing we didn't touch upon is the song is called 3090, and he's turning 30 in 1990. And he feels like he's turning 90, am I right? So that that that's the whole... That that's what the title is. It's not just like a clever play on numbers. One, it it also comes to the fraction is one third, but his life is way more than one way third. More over. Than one, yeah, I'm gonna keep coming back to this. Also, the beginning of the song starts slow and gets a little quicker. And I have found that if you press play on the song the second you're on a train pulling out of the station, the way the music speeds up works really well with the acceleration of the train. Huh. At I'll least the Long Island that. Railroad. I've I've managed okay. to time it pretty well. So John tells us about the musical that he's writing called Superbia and that he's going to have a workshop and that he's f worried about people coming. He's worried he doesn't like his agent, Rosa, who always ignores him. Here's the thing about Superbia. It was actually a musical that he was working on. Did it go anywhere? No. See, it was an adaptation of 1984 of the novel. and the Orwell so interesting. And the Orwell estate like wouldn't let him do it. God, there's so many monologues in the show of Larson just, like, fetching. It's hard for people born after 1960 to be idealistic or original. We know what happens to ideals. They're assassinated or corrupted or co-opted. He sounds like a someone who's trying to figure out what they want to do with their life. I, I think people today still talk like that. I know, because the problem is he annoys me, and then he also reminds me of me, and I'm like, ugh. Also, the fact that he's the young person. He was born in 1960. Yeah. So John and Susan are talking and Susan is explaining her frustration with essentially she has a similar attitude to what I just did where she's like, calm down, kid. I love you, but calm down. Um, but we do sing the song Green Green Dress, which is another lovely song. We're two for two. <laughs> Okay, if I did a theater cosplay, I've dreamed of it being of doing, of doing the green green dress because they describe it in really good detail that it's a green velvet dress, uh, form fitting, twenty buttons, a strap, and she's wearing yeah. it with black silk stockings. You could totally pull that off. Yeah, and, and they say that a friend made it for her anyway. But the point of the song, it's like a cute flirtatious song um, that she's wearing a dress and that he wants to unwrap her and make love. Yeah, and it's a very nice song. 
And it's a very nice interlude, and it shows us what's working in their relationship, considering that a lot of this musical... Seems seems to have something to do with it, yeah. But but considering that we get a lot of them sort of bickering, it's cute to see this moment with them to establish that there is something there. It's good to like have that song to kind of establish their relationship as like being a kind of fun, strong relationship because we do see that kind of start to break down over the course of the show. Right. Um, and Susan says, "Let's move out of New York," and John is like, eh, "But I want to be in New York City because I'm a musical theater writer." I like the line where she goes, I'm a dancer. I'd still be a dancer if I lived in New England, but I'd have a dishwasher. <laughs> um, so then we have the song Johnny Can't Decide. Michael and John and Susan are each singing third person about where they're at, focusing, of course, on Jonathan's problems because that's the show that it is. And that, oh, should John settle it down? Should he sell out? Should he keep powering through? He wants to keep powering through. I, I feel like that song is kind of him stuck between like it's kind of like a three-way struggle between like what he wants what susan wants and what he sees that michael has yeah and And he's mm -hmm. trying to figure out like what he wants to do like he has all the piece the information and he just doesn't know what to do with it and as annoying as john is in a lot of ways i think the musical does do a pretty good job of us feeling his struggle and and legitimately feeling this is you know that there's a difference between him monologuing about how great New York is and why would any jerk want to leave and him feeling worn down. Yeah. So this song is it, – it it does a lot expositionally, but it's kind of boring. It, it's not a strong song. Yeah, it's kind of boring and also the third person thing which first worked because he was doing this concert thing – it's very much like this character feels this way, this character feels this way. And it's a little bit tell, don't show, but eh, it's fine. It does help push the story along, but as a song, it it doesn't stand on its own. So the next scene is a song, and that's it. And the song is Sunday. So full disclosure, like embarrassingly recently, did I realize that this song is a direct parody From of Sunday, Sunday in the Park with George. Really? Because I, I know Sunday in the Park with George. I don't know every song. I've like listened to the songs out of order, and I had somehow missed the song Sunday. Oh. And I finally heard it, and I was like, oh, God, I'm an idiot. Because Jonathan Larson, just like all of us, God bless him, throughout this musical is obsessed with Stephen Sondheim. So he's taken this song about the beauty of a scene at a park and he's used it to describe vividly what it's like being a waiter in a diner in Soho and people are terrible. I this I think that song is so great because it's the parody of Sunday in the Park with George. And I thought it stood on its own. There were things about the song that I didn't really understand. Like why he's using so many colors. Like why he's using so many colors. I'd be like, on the green, purple, yellow, red stools. And I was like, I'm getting an image of these gross neon stools, but like, what's with all the different colors? It's because it's I'm from so Sunday sorry. In the Park with I'm so sorry. <laughs> Listen, I'm admitting my faults. Okay. And this is just the first of his many kind of references that he makes to other musicals yes and it's a really nice number and it always makes me feel a little bit guilty when i'm having brunch in a diner i'm just like oh god the waiter hates me (laughs) i'm a fool who should eat at home next scene is michael comes to pick up john in his new bmw 
Um, and it's great because as they're driving, John describes all of the neighborhoods that he sees. And I love honestly and, who drives in New York. Anyway, um, yeah. and I love it because he sees even the the squeegee people that appear so sort of grim in rent and he sees them and he's in love with them a little bit. And we've all had that stupid idealistic feeling, or at least I have, of like, look at the subway rat. Wow. Like, I love this city. <laughs> and listen, I've been here long enough that it could have worn off and that it probably isn't a phase. I, I, I do love the city because of its flaws. Like, its flaws is what makes it. A city. And I can yeah. start going on a rant about architecture right now that I'm not going to do. Well, <laughs> speaking of architecture, we get to Michael's recently remodeled apartment and we have the song No More. Back on track with another really great song. I love this song. It's really fun. Which is totally, he totally picked some of the music up and definitely plopped it in the song Rent. I like how this song compares a doorman to Captain Kangaroo. Um, it's And it's a great song because it's so jubilant. They're like hopping around, having a really good time. And Oh, I totally see them like sliding on the floor, like on their in their socks, like risky business style. <laughs> There's an image. Also, it's just some of the lines in here are, are great. Climbing over sleeping people before you get out the, the door, door of, of your, your own, own building. building. Yeah, it's just like it paints great pictures of like the, the, the environment that... John and Michael, up to a point, have been living in. Yeah, and also the way the melody shifts with the way they're talking about their own um, living situation. Like, no more leaky ceilings, no more holes in the floor. And it's this, like, loud sort of rock and roll chant. And then when it gets into how nice things are in the new apartment, the melody changes to, like, hello to shiny new parkwood lead... Parquet. Parquet wood floors. Oh, yeah, you would know that. (laughs) I also like the part, no more exotic, no more neurotic, Neurotic. no more anything but pleasantly robotic. Oh, yeah. And then there's another reference. So they hook in, we're moving on up to the east side. And this, once again, because I encountered this musical before I encountered a lot of other things, I did not realize that was a theme song from the Jeffersons until I was probably like 20 years old. (laughs) Michael and John have a conversation um, Michael, is this when Michael's trying to convince him to work for him? That happens pretty much any time they talk. But yeah, well, Michael is conv- is trying to. Con- is this is this the part where he's like, "Come in, come see what I'm doing." Like, yeah, and John is sort of like, maybe John's dad calls. His dad seems cute. John's agent calls. He hates her. Yeah. And, and like we said, the the other roles based on gender are played by either the the actor that plays Michael and Susan. So it, do we hear the other side of the conversation with his agent? Yep. Yeah, so, yeah, that so that's is, Susan. That. Then he does talk to Susan on the phone, and they bicker about whether or not it's worth him uh, going up to 96th and York. Good God, that is a long-distance relationship. If he's in Soho and she's on 96th and York. Yeah, that, that's got to be like He an goes, hour. it's two subways and a bus. Good God. But John and Susan's argument... Uh, leads into the song Therapy, which is really fun, patter, I think a really creative musical theater song of the natural sort of back and forth of two people who know each other really well having a couple conversation. Yeah. Like, oh God, it's like what it's like being inside one of those couple conversations that simultaneously says nothing and everything. And and they're clearly, they've, they've been in therapy for a while because they're using all of these I feel statements. Yeah. I'm not mad when you got mad when I got mad when you said I should go drop dead. If I were you. 
and I've done what I've done, I'd do what you did when I gave you the ring, having said what I said. Anyway, they're yeah. talking about giving each other a ring. I don't remember that happening at another point in the musical. I don't think it happens at another point in the musical. I think this is kind of we're hearing this for the first time that there is talk of them getting married. Well, Susan mentioned that she wants a family early in uh, Johnny Cantaside. Yeah. Yeah. So this is this is a phone call that they're having, correct? Yeah. So basically at the end of the song, they're they're like, well, it's 4 a.m. We're just going to go to sleep. Like, no one's going to come to each other. Like, I'm not going to go to you. You're not going to come to me. Like, that's it. Yep. It's it seems funny and not upsetting at the time. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely like a funny way to do it. It's like okay, you've clearly been on the phone from like ten p.m. to like four a.m. trying to work out all of your shit. So next, John is going to visit Michael at work, but the monologue that is a scene in and of itself on his way there is worth touching in and of itself because John is walking through Times Square, and first of all, he says every show's from London and every ticket costs a jaw dropping fifty bucks. One, oh, ha, ha, ha. I yeah, wish. Right. But other than that, it, I mean, well, we're living in an age where, thank God, the London scourge has more or less passed. I mean, Katz is back, but... Mm. Mm. Um, but it's great because he's he's fetching... He's just having a fetch fest, but he does say that um, one time he met his idol, and he literally can't even say it. He just calls him Stephen Sondheim. He, like, whispers it. He won't say Stephen Sondheim, and it's like, girl, I relate. Um, but like he goes, I write musicals with rock music, a contradiction in terms. Broadway's 60 years behind anything you hear on the radio. You can't put rock on stage, real rock, not warmed over easy listening pop, not plastic imitation 50s bubble gum. And, he go, and then he goes, he's thinking of the show that is about to go as a workshop. And he goes, could my show end up here? Is it good enough for Broadway? Is it too good for Broadway? And then the very last sentence of the monologue is, it's that raging mix of envy and contempt. And this is kind of what pushes me last minute onto... Onto his side, that sort of degree of self-deprecation and self-awareness that kind of makes all the insufferableness sufferable. I followed like half of that. Cool. <laughs> um, well, it's a good thing that I am liking John at this moment because we're about to get to John at the office, which is a disaster. First of all, we're supposed to hate people. So right away, the office lady is like, he writes musicals like Andrew Lloyd Webber. And we're like, boo. No. <laughs> And they're having a meeting, and it's a stereotypical meeting where they're only talking in corporate doublespeak and throwing out words, and it doesn't mean anything. And John says stupid stuff and gets himself kicked out of the meeting. I must say that at the end of the meeting, there's a sort of a cute little device where the various people in the meeting start yelling out words, and it sort of turns into, like, an orgy. Like, it's kind of contact from rent, because they're just throwing out phrases, and they're like, the pilgrims, the first Thanksgiving, family, love, sex, pleasure, desire, lust, urge, hot. But it, but as, as, a, as a comedic, it's not a song, it's just a, a funny moment of this circle jerk of corporate nonsense becoming semi-literal. And I think that's cute, even though John is... You know, they're like, this is what it's like in an office environment. It's like, calm down, Jonathan Larson. Yeah, this is why people have a problem with rent. You're making it more difficult for me to defend you. But I will forever. Okay. I do like that it's it's this like fat um, diet product. And the he suggests calling it NutraFat. And what gets him kicked out of the meeting is calling it Chubstitute. <laughs> um, but John and Michael are arguing and first of all Michael points out what we were all thinking which is he's going to get in trouble at the office that he brought John there 
But John doesn't really think about that, now does he? No, no. Mike, Michael's kind of just like, you're going to get me fired. You're going to get me in trouble. Like, why did you have to do this? Like, Michael insinuates something's wrong, but he won't say what it is. Uh, so Michael sings Real Life, which is a song I want to like, but I just find it boring. I, I can't like it. It doesn't feel even that context specific. No, it's it's kind of just like a ballad in melody, and it's just talking about nothing, really. Like, I don't even know what this song is talking about. Um, they I just keep talking, is this real life? Is this real life? I guess using everything else we know and then will know about the characters, it adds a little bit of color, especially to Michael, who's going through a lot of stuff, but... Is this him, like, kind of second-guessing his job and that he he decided to live in this corporate world? Yeah, it's both of them doubting a little bit, but... John kind of constantly reminds him of the world he left behind. Yeah, and he's kind of mean about it, but... <laughs> he's also... He's so self-centered. And yes, this show is, like, all about him so he can be self-centered, but, like, the characters look kind of a dick. Well, but it's interesting is he wrote a character who is kind of a jerk and wrote other characters or, uh, you know, some of this, a lot of this is the playwright um, who who adapted the work. But there are, this show does have characters around him who consistently call him out. And it's not like when you're watching The Room and everyone just exists to tell Tommy Wiseau how wonderful he is. The corporate people are silly two-dimensional characters, but Michael and Susan, who are trying to point things out to John, are, are really sympathetic. So John's on the way to Superbia rehearsal, and he goes to buy a Twinkie, and he sings. Uh, sugar. He sings "Sugar." Do you want to take this? Sure. Um, so, the, like I said, this was the, the my first introduction to the show, and the lyrics at the beginning of this song are just they they seem a little wrong for a little bit. Like it kind of almost sounds at the beginning like he's talking about she can be white. She can be brown. She's, She's always a... easy. Going down, going down. Yeah. She can... don't care what I look like or how I dress. Okay, no. It, so it kind of sounds like he's talking about a sex worker. Or some other type of, 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 of hookup pay- situation. Yeah. yeah. But he talks about paying because he's like for a small That's true. Price. Yeah, and he's talking about sugar. Get it? Ha ha. Whatever. It's a it's a funny song for like the first couple of verses, and then it's kind of one note. Right. But also, we meet Caressa, who is an actor in his show, and she runs into him, and she loves Twinkies too. Oh my god, they have so much in common. And and clearly, she's trying to sleep with him. I mean, I guess you could direct it that way, but I don't think. I mean so. that I. Because Susan has takes issue with their relationship at one point. Well, Susan sees him, like, walk with her and kiss her on the cheek, and obviously this woman is gorgeous. And, like, that's that's Susan's issue. But um, John and Caressa sing about how much they like sugar. You got me kissing your feet, pretty baby. As in anyway. Twinkies. Yes. After rehearsal, John monologues some more about... <sighs> Maybe I really have written the show that will reinvent musicals for our generation, the hair of the 90s, the cultural lightning rod that will energize the 20-something generation. We slackers raised on the Brady Bunch and Reaganomics, armed with nothing but... Cra- I'm going to stop because He's this is like a run-on there. sentence. Like it, that, that sentiment is, it could be about rent. Yeah, which is which is something he was going for his whole career and that he eventually gets it, but this is not the show and also you're annoying. The only thing I will give you in the point of maybe Caressa is into him is he's ranting to her and 
she is like, oh my God, I agree with you. That's so true. And I'm like, no, you don't. Susan and John bicker a little bit more because Susan uh, has a job in Northampton that will be a couple of weeks, but could turn into something permanent. And John's like, uh, let's wait until after the workshop. And she's like, so if the workshop goes well, you're staying at it. If the workshop doesn't go well, you're just quitting musical theater. And he's like, I don't know. And she's annoyed. And so uh, John sings a song, See Her Smile, which is another song that's like slow and boring. He hadn't really worked out the ballad yet. The ballads are his weakest part of this musical. Yeah. Like, he's better with a rock music than he is with the typical ballad. He hadn't really quite figured yeah he hasn't quite figured out how to do it and i don't think he really does figure it out he just kind of shifts it well see her smile is a, an okay song yeah it's not particularly good um it, it's john singing to susan about wanting to make her happy but like also not wanting to like give up himself to make her happy yeah i guess what the song that's what the song is about sort of like real life it feels it, it's vague and bland so guess what it's finally you know the big climax is musical it's finally time for the workshop john's agent shows up john's dad shows up guess who else is there steven sondheim ah. steven sondheim is there and i'm like I, like larson in real life did have a relationship with steven sondheim like sondheim uh really uh, saw big things in Jonathan Larson and he and Stephen Sondheim likes rent so yeah so here's what's interesting is the only thing we see from the workshop because we're not going to see the whole thing is we're going to see one number the song has come to your senses and it is a song that Larson wrote for Superbia that they went and reinserted in this musical uh, after his death when it came to Off-Broadway in 2001 I actually didn't know that. Yeah, so the, this is the only song from Superbia that's in the show, and it it's not like Your Eyes in Rent where he's writing a song for a character to write. They actually just took a song out of his trunk. So here's the thing everyone knows about Your Eyes in Rent is uh, Roger sings one song, Glory, and it's a great song. At the end of the musical, he says, here's a song it took me all year to write, and he sings Your Eyes, and we're all like, eh. One song, Glory, was better. Yeah, we're like, and, and I've always wondered... Did Jonathan Larson intentionally underwrite the song a little bit because he didn't want to make Roger too talented? And this is something I've wondered. And it sort of feels like that here, even though that's not the case, because, you know, we're talking about how this musical is looking at Jonathan Larson a few years before he wrote Rent and Come to Your Senses is looking at his songwriting even before this musical. That's the thing is this song is supposed to be like the standout song from Superbia and Caressa kills it. And it's supposed to be him being like, see, I am really talented. And I'm like, I don't know, the other stuff that you've been singing as you've been explaining that you're a songwriter is better to me. As his ballads go, this is the best, I would say this is the best one in the show. I mean, it's interesting to think of in the context of 1984. Well, this is... This is the 1984 musical. This is a workshop of the musical that was based on 1984, Superbia. They literally in this musical at no point say what Superbia is about. It is only from, like, research that I know that it's supposed to be 1984. Maybe it sounds less vague if you impose, if you, like, superimpose that context over it. Yeah, there. it's definitely a love song and... I mean, the only thing I could think of that would reference 1984 is, is talking about the screens and the the fences. It's an okay. It's a song that, on its surface, does not do much for me, but I find really fascinating to pick apart in the context of Jonathan Larson's career, which this musical is about. So after the workshop, John talks to his agent. He talks to other friends in the industry, and they're all sort of vaguely like, "Yeah, it was a success. It was great." Uh, 
probably going to be kind of weird. I don't really expect it to be on Broadway, but, you know, keep working on it. That's how workshops go, which is how workshops go. And, like, Larson was working on Rent for years. Uh, so, you know, considering that he should know how the game is played, it's the last straw and he was putting all of his eggs in this basket. Like, he was building everything up to this workshop when this workshop is not the be-all, end-all. So John goes to Michael's office and confronts him and for the first time in the show makes a speech that he's going to have to give up the musical theater thing. Everyone else have, has kept moving. I'm the only one here still banging my head against the wall. My head hurts. And and John says, you know what? That's it. It's time to pack it in. And for the first time, Michael goes, no, you have to stick with it. Like, as much as he's trying to convince John that, like, like he won't make it, like, he should become corporate, I think he kind of likes having kind of a foot in that world still. Right. I know this. Mu- the dialogue in this musical was written after John dies, but John says, like, what, am I going to spend another five years in a show that doesn't go anywhere? By then I'll be 35. And it's like, oh, my God, you'll be 35 uh-huh. and you'll have the good show and you'll be dead anyway. Oh. Um, but yeah. here's the thing is that um, John says, well, you have everything now. Why are now, after all of this pestering me, you telling me to stay with it? And Michael's like, your work is really good. And John's like, but it's not going anywhere. And Michael tells John that he has HIV. And John just kind of leaves. Um, So I think that Jonathan Larson as a person had friends. He did. And I tried to figure out if Michael was based on one specific person and I could not. So anyway, it's 1990. And when John hears that his friend has HIV, he hears that his friend is dying. And he says that. So what happens next is because once again, even though you don't see any of the places he's talking about, the way the quick ways he describes the different parts of the city are so evocative. So John is running through Central Park. He runs past the carousel. He runs through Sheep's Meadow. And he gets to Belvedere Castle and he finds a rehearsal piano in the Delacorte Theater. So this next song, the thing is, I like had forgotten that detail. And imagine this next song that is like making me feel things. Imagine him sitting alone in an old at an old piano in the empty Delacorte Theater in the off season. Oh, my God. Right? That just like it breaks my heart even more. He sings Why. I love this song. Yeah. So this is more of a ballad, and this okay. one, and it's kind of repetitive. It's just him talking about, hey, remember when I was like nine years old, and then a teenager, and then an adult, and I really grew to love musical theater and performance. Yeah. But he sells it so hard. Yeah. He's he's like, at all of these ages, this is what I've wanted. This is what I've wanted, and I'm almost here. But now I don't know if I should do it. I think over the course of the song, he decides. Yes, and that's why it's such a good, important song. He he thinks maybe it'll give. I'll have to give. I have to give up. And then he's thinking, even when he has to like wake up out of his reverie, writing music and go work at his stupid job at a diner. Just the feeling of getting it right and writing the song that he wants to do, of like finishing the hat, as Sondheim would say. Um, <laughs> He thinks like, no, I, I have to, I vow it. I'm going to stick by it. And it's yeah. and, and that's really the emotional climax of the show. Um, and this is this is one of the songs where he makes a reference to another musical. Um, 
a few other musicals. Well, definitely West Side. West Side. And I mean, also, he references a few songs and he sings them as he, so he goes, right. you know, we sang Yellow Bird and Let's Go Fly a Kite. So he like works the snippets of these other songs into there. We sang Got a Rocket in Your Pocket and, and the, the Jets, Jets Are Gonna, gonna Have Their day. day Tonight. He, he, he finishes by quoting himself and he goes, I sing, come to your senses, defenses are not the way to go. Which is a line from Come to Your which Senses. Which is, right, which is his own work. And it doesn't feel pretentious or self-congratulatory. It feels like this is what fulfills him is contributing to that sort of work. Well, well it's his narrative. It's his, like, before I was singing other people's stuff, now I'm singing my own stuff. Yeah, it, it's kind of a, like this. This has been my arc. Oh, can I love how throughout the song he keeps saying Michael and I, even though he, by the end he and Michael he references have grown apart in this professional way. Yeah, that it's also about this root that has started since his childhood that also comes from like friendships and bonds with other right. people. It's, it's like it's their relationship is what part partially made him fall in love with musical theater. His relationship with Michael is more developed than his relationship with Susan. Oh. A hundred percent. She like shows up to be female and to be a girlfriend and like remind him that he can have that this is another option he has is like being the family man. We don't know how long the two of them have been dating, but we know that he and Michael have been friends since they were nine. Well, so the next song is John's birthday party. It's Saturday night. He's 30. There's a cute little reprise of 3090. So, for example, Susan, their breakup is so anticlimactic. She sees him and they say they'll miss each other and they say they'll write to each other and it says she disappears into the crowd and suddenly Michael's beside me. It's kind of been very clear over the course of the show that they want very different things out of life. It's like she wants to leave New York. She still wants to be a dancer somewhere else. And John's not okay with leaving. He's like, I can't give up. I can't do this. So like they're not breaking up because they don't love each other. They're breaking up because they want different things. Yeah, but it's it's such a fizzle. Yeah. But anyway, but he and Michael reconcile and John vows to be by Michael's side no matter what happens. And it's very moving. Yeah. And then um, in in a moment practically taken out of rent, John... Steve Sondheim. And Stephen Sondheim leaves him a voicemail. <laughs> Stephen Sondheim calls John and says, let's talk about your musical. I really liked it. You're going to have a great future. I tried looking up to see if this was actually possibly like a real voicemail. I couldn't find anything. He was at his lowest point and then he had this emotional climactic moment in the park where he pushed through. And now this is sort of the reinforcement that he made the right decision. Like things are going to be okay because if Stephen Sondheim says you have a future, then gosh dang it. I mean, there's a lot of parallels between Lin-Manuel Miranda and Jonathan Larson. Lin-Manuel Miranda, who has played John in this show. And it's so funny. Yeah, it was only, it it was two years ago at City Center. It was him. All the female roles was Karen Olivo. And I remember thinking... I haven't even heard of the third guy. And it was Leslie Odom Jr. Oh. It was Leslie Odom Jr. like immediately pre-Hamilton. And I was like, I don't know who this third guy is. And I'm like, I hate myself. Um, So John returns us to the initial motif and says the tick-tick booms are softer now. And he goes, if I play loud enough, I can drown them out completely. Oh, God. Now that he's 30, he's not afraid of turning 30. Yeah, but it's not, it's not just that. It's now that he, that he has just reached a level of emotional security and he's not going to be as focused on his mortality and time running out because he knows he can make it. And Oh, God. But okay. he does. He can. He will. 
so the last song in the show is Louder Than Words, which is maybe cheesy, but I don't care and shut up and I love it and shut up. <laughs> I said nothing. No, I wasn't talking to you. You're talking to the audience. I'm talking to whoever tried to say something just now. Fight, fight her on this. Fight me. John and the Michael, Michael and Susan or, or their actors singing a song about how as human beings, we want to do what makes us feel safe. But really what makes us feel alive is taking risk. Yeah, I do really like this song. It's like a, a don't don't give up. You're almost there. You can do it kind of song. It's that when I was a teenager, this song absolutely made me feel that way. And so, like, John's going to be okay until he drops dead yeah. before his 36th birthday. Um, okay, so now that we're officially done with the songs of the show, do we talk about Boho Days? We do talk about Boho Days. There's other stuff that both did and didn't, like, make the cut, but Boho Days is worth mentioning. Yeah, it's a cute song where he's just singing very vividly in uh, giving it a kind of a color that he doesn't in all of this in all of the in a lot of the songs that I think they could use. No, no more being a notable exception. And Boho Days is more of like a chant. Can you name all the roommates? Revolving door roommates prick up your ears. Fourteen people in just four years. There's. Oh my God. Ann and Max and Jonathan and Jonathan and Carrie. David, Tim, no, Tim was just a guest from June to January. Margaret, Lisa, David, Susie, Stephen, Joe, and Sam and Elsa, the bill collector's dream who is still on the lam. Don't forget the neighbors, Michelle and Gay. All right, lyric time. Ariel, what is your least favorite lyric in this show? No. Give me a least favorite lyric. Least favorite lyric is. Hold on. I just wrote Johnny Can't Decide as my least favorite lyric. Johnny has no guide. Johnny wants to hide is probably my least favorite lyric. Yeah, that's fair. That, yeah. <laughs> it's just, it, it's it's such an easy lyric. It's like, hmm, what can rhyme with decide? Hide. Perfect. Uh, my least favorite lyric is from See Her Smile. So John is talking about how he doesn't like his girl being sad, and he says, I'm her clown because a laughing angel's richer than kings. Because he was talking about, like, she's an angel with wings, but that line is so clunky. It's not a great line. It's not really a great song either. What's your fave lyric? Okay, so the favorite lyric was definitely the piece of the of 3090 that I had as my ringtone. All right, lay it on us. Um... So it's uh, Peter Pan and Tinkerbell, which way to never, never land. Emerald City has gone to hell since the wizard blew Blew off off half the command. Blew off his command. His command? Blew off his command. Blew off his command. So my favorite lyric. So, okay, when I was in high school and each senior had an entire page of the yearbook to do with what we will. So I did include Cages or Wings, which do you prefer Ask the Birds, which is also one of my desktop backgrounds, my laptop backgrounds. Um... That's a little bit embarrassing, and that's not actually my choice. Um, I really like from the end of Why, or throughout Why, he goes, I think, hey, what a way to spend the day. Um, And particularly in the end, I make a vow right here now, I'm going to spend my time this way. It's a simple rhyme. It doesn't, but not in an embarrassing, like, oh, God, these two things rhyme. They have to go together. Side and hide. But, But the hey, what a way to spend a day, I think, so simply and beautifully and efficiently gets across what it's like having this sort of creative fulfillment. 
Ariel, thank you for coming back and talking with us about a musical that has never been on Broadway and is therefore mostly not important. Eh. <laughs> it's still important. Yeah, that was a joke. Of course it's important. Of course it's important. Yeah. important. Definitely um, important. Thanks for listening to Take a Little Talk a Little. We're online at paltalpodcast.weebly.com. We're on Facebook at Pick a Little Talk a Little and Twitter at Paltal Podcast. As always, we are edited and produced by the incomparable Rachel Jacobs. She's at Twitter as WTFRJK. I am your host, Gabriella Gazelowitz. You can find me on Twitter, Gabby Gazelowitz, G-A-B-Y-G-E-S-E-L-O-W-I-T-Z. Easy. Please rate us and review us. It really would mean a lot. Email us, paltelpodcast at gmail.com if you want to say hi. All right, thanks. And until next time, and as they say in The Music Man, where is the good in goodbye? <laughs>